The battle between good and evil, it's an age-old debate and discussion, what is good, what is evil. Many of us have grown up playing, being the good guys, whoever the good guys may have been, trying to defeat the bad guys, whoever the bad guys may have been. Star Wars will probably keep churning out movies because we love to hear a story about good versus evil, to be on the side of the, of the force rather than the dark side. And interesting in our times in that maybe we're trying to be more nuanced now, and so the, we don't want to just call some people good guys and some people bad guys, and so we get stories of the anti-hero like Breaking Bad, which I couldn't finish watching because it's just like this slow burn of self-destruction, and you see this internal battle within the person of, of choosing what is, brings life and what will bring death to him eventually, I'm assuming. I didn't watch the end, but I'm assuming it doesn't go well. And we bring the nuance of the battle of good and evil within each and every one of us. And yet, it's there, no matter how we feel like things have gotten so fuzzy in our world of what is right and what is wrong, it is a question that we still ask. What is good? What is evil? What do we do between the battle between good and evil? And so we come to Revelation chapter 12, which is, uh, if you look at the literary structure of the book of Revelation, really the center point of the book of Revelation, and it draws our attention to what is so significant about this particular chapter or this section, uh, chapters 12 through 15, and it really is trying to speak to a church struggling, uh, suffering, wondering whether they can maintain a faithful witness to Christ and and have the church continue to grow, and as I've said before, we don't feel that same urgency today. Seems to be a lot of Christians around seems to be a lot of churches on every block, and so maybe we don't need to be so worried. And yet, we have seen friends and family, or even ourselves, struggle with continuing to believe, continuing to bear witness to the truth of Christ. And so we, there may be church buildings on every corner, but we have to wonder, what is the vibrancy in those churches? What is the faith of the people in those churches? What is their witness to our world? We have friends and family who have walked away from the faith, and when that happens, Even in our own church, it is one of the most heartbreaking things for me as a pastor to see someone say, I I just don't believe anymore, or maybe I never believed. And so it is a very real struggle for every one of us. And so we're going to see um, what does Revelation 12 have to say about the battle between good and evil, and and I believe it's going to show us this reality. There is war. There is hope. Hope in Christ. There is war, there is hope, hope in Christ. Just to, I'm not, again, going to go into how we interpret Revelation, but I feel like I have to say it just in case you have not been a part of our series so far. We're not reading and interpreting this book in a chronological fashion. We recognize that there are symbols and signs that point to truth of God that he wants to speak to us, that there's parallels in the book of Revelation going through a series of events from different perspectives over and over again. And so here in chapter 12, we see that uh, God is speaking to us in the church age, the church age being the time between Jesus' first coming and the second coming, the world in which we live in right now, speaking to, yes, the original audience, but to us today as well in 2020. And so I hope that you 
gain encouragement from this message as well, just as the early church did. In this first section, uh, verses 1 through 6, we're going to see there's a war on earth and that we're at a hope in Christ's rule. We see uh, in these first verses that there's introduction of the two main characters in this vision. First, the woman who is pregnant and who bears a child, and then Satan, symbolized by the great red dragon. And it's interesting, in the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, each message to the seven churches end with this promise of God to the one who conquers, and then a promise. And so it leaves us asking the questions, what are Christians to conquer, or who are Christians to conquer? And it's interesting that the book of Revelation has not answered that question, in fact, until this point in chapter 12. And we are told that we are to conquer the great red dragon. And we are to realize that there is a war on earth that we live in. And there is a war. There's a war for your hearts, your allegiance. Will you be faithful and loyal to Christ? Or will you be loyal to the great red dragon? And Revelation tells us there really are ultimately only two choices. No matter how nuanced we want to be, Revelation says, okay, all your nuance is great, but ultimately there are only two choices. The dragon is described as having ten horns and wearing seven diadems, and it's to symbolize that he wants complete power and control and rule over our lives. The dragon wants to dethrone God from our lives so that we keep ourselves and therefore the dragon on the throne of our lives rather than God himself. And the great red dragon, red dragon also brings later on in chapter 13, the first beast and the second beast. The great red dragon is clearly stated as being Satan in verse 9 in this chapter. The primeval supernatural source of opposition to God. But then the first beast that comes in chapter 13 is a beast that comes out of the sea, the sea monster, Leviathan. And it symbolizes the imperial power of Rome and really any power that comes after that is like that. And the second beast that comes out of the earth is the earth monster behemoth symbolizing the propaganda, the, the false teaching machine of the imperial cult. And again, any false teaching like it that comes that tempts believers to stray from the truth of Christ. So I want to ask you this question. This promise of God has been given to the one who conquers. And chapter 12 says the one who we are to conquer is the great red dragon. And so it makes us ask this question, who is your enemy in your life? Who is your enemy in your life? And Revelation 12 would tell you, your enemy is the great red dragon. It is Satan. It is the devil. He is the reason for evil and suffering in this world. Now, the book of Revelation, the book of Job, the book of Habakkuk that we went through recently remind us that, yes, God is ultimately sovereign and in control, and it is only as God allows it can Satan do anything in this world, bring any suffering, bring any evil. It may not for you resolve that thing you feel like, why, God, do we have to suffer still? Why do you allow suffering to exist and yet scripture does teach us very clearly the root of evil is the great red dragon, is evil. He is our enemy and no one else. 
It is Satan who wants to use our suffering to turn our hearts against God, to turn us to betray God and our faith in God. It is Satan who wants us to cause us to be so angry at God that we would leave him to believe that the pleasures of the world are the only solution to the pain that we experience of this world. Who is your enemy? Let me tell you, your enemy is not non-Christians. Your enemy is not Muslims. Your enemy is not Buddhists or New Ageists. Your enemy is not the theologically liberal. It is not the politically extreme to the left or to the right. It is certainly not your spouse, although we may treat them like that sometimes. It is not your children when they're misbehaving. It is not your difficult mom or dad. It is not your unreasonable boss or your difficult co-workers. It is not people. It is the great red dragon. The great red dragon is very happy for you to make any one of those people your enemy and have you focus on them. Satan wants people to be divided against one another, except in this exception, which is this. Satan's happy for us to be unified in our betrayal of God together. Satan's happy for us to be united in our opposition against God, to instead to be loyal to the unholy trinity of the dragon, the Leviathan, and the behemoth. Who is your enemy? It's not even yourself. Sometimes we treat ourselves like we are our worst enemy. Scripture makes it very clear in Romans that when we have put our faith in Christ, that our sin nature has died with Christ, we've been raised up in new life with Christ and made a new creation. And Paul makes it very clear to us that sin nature has died and that is no longer new. We know very well we battle against sin in our lives, yet Paul, and in Revelation here, tells us, you are not your worst enemy anymore. Your sin nature has died. It has no power over you. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. You are God's. You are Christ's. Satan wants you divided against yourself, even. Satan wants you to see yourself as your greatest enemy. Because ironically, when we do that, then we have kept ourselves on the throne of God and not believed the truth of what God says about us. And that is the old nature has died and we are new creations in God. This language that we hear in this first section, this very cosmic language reminds us that we are in a cosmic spiritual Warfare, suns and moons and stars. And it reminds us that the stakes are high and that the battle is everywhere if we have spiritual eyes to see it. But really, in everyday life, it is the mundane and the seemingly inconsequential that is where the battle is at. Spiritual warfare can be as simple as working hard but putting too much of our identity in our work. Spiritual warfare can be loving our church, but at the same time looking down on all the other churches. Spiritual warfare can be being patriotic, but just a little bit too much. Spiritual warfare can be loving your family, but making your family an idol over God. 
all of those seemingly little decisions, good things twisted into bad, is where spiritual warfare is at. It seems so grand in Revelation 12, and yet it is everyday life. It is everywhere. It is cosmic in that sense. And Satan wants you to believe that he doesn't exist, that he is not at work on you, that his suggestions are not in opposition to God, but maybe even from the voice of God. If Satan can make us religiously committed to something that is actually not from God, and yet we think it's from God, then he has won that battle. But we don't need to fear Satan, is what Revelation 12 tells us. Nor do we need to fear the outcome of this cosmic spiritual warfare because Jesus Christ didn't just die in the hands of Satan at the cross. From the perspective of man, when we look at what Christ did on the cross, it seems like he lost. And that is the great irony of the work of God, is that he looks like he lost, It looks like Satan won. It looks like the dragon won. But in fact, it is through the loss that Christ wins. It is through the loss where the power of sin and death and Satan is defeated. And it tells us right here that Jesus ascends to the throne of God. In previous sermons, we talked about the importance of the throne room of God the emanating worship that came out of the throne room of God, and this theme of the throne mentioned again and again in Scripture, and that Jesus is the one who has ascended to the throne of God, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And here in just one verse, in verse 5, we get that whole stretch of Jesus' ministry from incarnation to ascension described in one verse. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus is at the throne of God. He's not been defeated. He is not dead. He reigns on the throne of God. And so when we suffer, when we doubt, it's understandable we feel that way. And yet Jesus is at the throne ruling, and we find hope because of that. This cosmic war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan has been going on for eons. Genesis 3.15 that we heard read earlier points us to that. And in Revelation, we see the fulfillment of God's promise through Jesus Christ, the woman's offspring, and that he will rule over Satan and defeat him once and for all. We have hope because Christ rules from the throne of God. And yet, that's not the only reason why we have hope. The passage continues in 7 through 12, where we see now a war in heaven, and yet we have hope because of Christ's victory. The vision, again, now moves from earth to heaven, and the chronology is not that important. What is important is the symbols and what they show us. Again, verses 7 through 12 could be used to describe what has just been described in verses 1 through 6, what happened in heaven, but now looking at it from a heavenly perspective, looking at it from the heavenly battle between angel Michael and the dragon. And in verse 9, the dragon is described as the deceiver of the whole world. And in verse 10, the dragon is described as the accuser. 
Spiritual warfare always involves the battle between believing the dragon's lies and believing Christ's truth. Believing between the dragon's accusations against you and Christ's promises to you. How have you believed Satan's lies and accusations in your life? How have you believed his lies and accusations over Christ's truth and promises to you? Here are some very common lies and accusations I hear people saying again and again that they believe in. Isn't all that supernatural stuff in the Bible, in Revelation, all a bit ridiculous? You don't really need to believe in Christ alone, right? Is there really life to be found in Jesus? There's so much life in so many other things out there in the created world. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let you suffer. You're saved by grace. Go ahead and sin. Christ has already paid for it. You're not good enough to be a Christian or even to go to church. God must be withholding good stuff from you because of your sin. No one likes you. You're always an outsider. You can't live live without your addiction. You are your addiction. There's spiritual warfare going on right now as you listen to God's word preached. Are you listening with your ears? Are you listening with spiritual eyes? Are you listening with your heart? Are you explaining away God's comfort or challenge? In this section, we are clearly told that the dragon is defeated and thrown down from heaven to earth. Satan may still have power here on earth, but he has been defeated. Christ is victorious. And what is said here echoes what Jesus himself said in John 12, verses 31 to 33. He said, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, Satan, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He said this as he went to the cross. The dragon may bring harm in this world still, but God will grow his church because the dragon has been defeated. And we are called to find hope in Christ's victory, to trust in the defeat of the dragon, though he may still be flailing around, flailing his tail around and hurting We are called to conquer Satan by participating in Christ's death with him. And again, it echoes Jesus' very own words. Are we willing to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, to die to our desires? We are called to this cruciform life, to live as Jesus did we are called to conquer to the point of death. And that doesn't, sometimes it seems like when you read Revelation, it's like, are, are, is everyone supposed to be martyred for the faith? But the point is not so much whether you will, it's been predicted that you'll be martyred or not martyred. The point is, are you willing to die for your faith? Are you willing to die to be a faithful witness to God? 
or will you slowly edge towards an allegiance with the dragon? It's never very obvious. It's not, it's not just one day we're like, I believe so much in Jesus yesterday, but now forget him. The dragon is for me. It's a slow slide. Almost always we are called to live a life of dying to ourselves just like Jesus died on the cross for us. I don't know if anyone reads the New York Times. I try to just to familiarize, familiarize myself with what's going on in the world and particularly from a, a more liberal perspective. But David Brooks, who writes opinion pieces, wrote a really interesting piece this week, and it was titled, Why Sanders Will Probably Win the, Win the Nomination. Subtitle, Democrats Already See Reality Through the Bernie Lens. And this was before uh, Bernie won convincingly yesterday in the Nevada caucuses. He said, uh, David Brooks says, successful presidential candidates are myth makers. They don't just tell a story. They tell a story that helps people make meaning out of the current moment, that divides people into heroes and villains, that names a central challenge and explains why they are the perfect person to meet it. And Brooks goes on to explain how President Trump was the best myth maker in 2016, and that was why he was able to win the presidency. And Brooks makes the point that Sanders is the best mythmaker amongst the Democrat nominees right now, and that everyone is speaking according to Bernie's worldview. But Bernie is the one who is the best at explaining this worldview, of making this myth, of making meaning out of the world that we live in. Democrat candidates are engaging in their debates and campaigns according to this worldview that Sanders beats them in explaining. Spiritual warfare is a battle of what myths we believe in. When I say myths, I don't mean myths as in things that are untrue. I mean worldviews to explain the world as we see it and the meaning behind it. Revelation reminds us that there's only one true myth, one true worldview that explains life as we see it and gives it meaning. All other myths then are lies if we choose to believe in them. The one true myth, of course, is the story of God, is the story that is told in Scripture. And the end of that story is what we're looking at in Revelation to give us hope as we struggle with competing myths in this world. Maybe, maybe Bernie's myth is better. Maybe Trump's myth is better. And scripture says, neither of those myths are correct. They don't, they don't, they're just straw men. The only myth that can make sense of history, of this world, of good and evil as we see it, is God's story. And so verse 10 hits us because we need this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. We need that truth that one day there will no longer be 
any evil. And that even now as we live, the power of the dragon has been defeated. And yet, he's still throwing out lies and accusations against us. And I encourage you, church, to do the work in your own life of sorting out what are lies and accusations you've believed that are from Satan. And instead, sort out what it means to hold fast to the truths and promises of God to found your life upon that. The obvious things, of course, are to be in prayer about it, to read scripture so that you might discern what are truth and what are lies. But it also means doing theology in community, in community group, in Bible studies, over breakfast with other brothers and sisters in Christ to sort out what are things that you believe that are lies from Satan rather than promises from God. It means reaching out to your pastor to, to, to help sort that out or even a counselor to help point out lies that you believed. In all those efforts, though, rest in the most important truth that is so clearly stated in Revelation. The dragon has been thrown down and defeated, and Christ has the victory. I'm just going to quickly mention the last section. It's important, but we don't have time to go deeply into it. But verses 13 through 17, we see that the war continues, and that just means that's the war that we're living in, and that there is hope in Christ's protection Two times in Revelation 12, we see the woman, which is the church, being protected, being delivered into the wilderness away from the serpent. And this last section tells us that, again, though the dragon has been defeated, he will continue to try to wreak havoc in the church, in the witness of the church, as it continues to share the gospel far and wide. And yet we are told again that God will protect his church, that we can have hope because of God's protection. That does not mean that we may not, that we will not suffer, but it does mean that God's purposes will be fulfilled, and he calls us to be a part of that. There is a war that continues on earth, but there is hope in Christ's rule, in Christ's victory, and in Christ's protection. And I leave you with three very simple application questions. Are you fighting in spiritual warfare? I know that sounds really obvious and basic. But I know many who just kind of go on their day making enemies out of everyone and not think at all that Satan is the one behind all of it. Are you fighting in spiritual warfare? Are you conquering Satan? I know ultimately, Jesus is the one who conquers Satan, but again, the promises to the churches is the one who conquers. He calls us to conquer, and it is this strange truth. We conquer by losing. We conquer by willing to die to ourselves. We conquer in the way that Jesus conquers, willing to die. And so, the last question follows from that. Are you dying to yourself for your witness for Christ? Are you dying to yourself for your witness for Christ? And I've said this before, and I'll say it again because you may not have heard that sermon. When I say witness, I don't mean all the times that you stop someone and says, I want to tell you the gospel. I don't mean that witness. I mean 
your whole life, your whole life as a witness to God. And so in that sense, it connects very much with Jesus' words, take up your cross and follow me and die to yourself. It is as we live distinctly according to Christ and Christ's way of death, that is where our faithful witness is shown. There is war, there is hope. There is hope in Christ's rule, Christ's victory, Christ's protection. And because there is hope, I want you to hear the truth and promises of God to counter the lies and accusations of Satan. And so I'm going to say the reverse of the lies that I said earlier. God is supernatural. Salvation is found in Christ's death and resurrection alone. Life to the full is found in Jesus. God loves you enough to allow you to suffer so that you may know him more intimately. You are saved by grace and have died to the sinful nature. Why live in it anymore? You are not good enough to be a Christian. But by faith in Christ, you are a Christian. God will one day give you your heart's desires. You are beloved. You are a new creation. This is Christ's truth and promises for us. Rest in them. Let us pray.